Good morning, everybody. Tony Gonzalez coming to you with Nate Sanel. Nate is a guy that's doing it the same, but he's also doing it differently. As the owner of National Power Sports Distributors and Concord Triumph, Nate is very intimate with being a dealer principal, but he's also switching things up on how he offers pre-owned product to the rest of the country. He's kind of a visionary in the way that he thinks about things and how he looks at the model of doing business, and he's constantly looking for cool new things to dip his toe into. You guys are going to enjoy this uh, episode of GarageCast with Nate Sandel. Talk to you guys soon. Have a great Tuesday. We're going to do our best to get new thinking out there. There's going to be discussions centered around growth and new thinking. That's where those great ideas come from, exploring them together. Nuggets that you can go back and put into your dealership that'll help you make more money. This is GarageCast. Welcome to GarageCast. Tony Gonzalez here. Sam Dantzler on the line with me. As you guys know, we live in Colorado and we do a lot of 20 clubs. That's what we're doing right now is working our tails <laughs> off and trying to do our part to make sure we remain crushing it in uh, 2022. Well, speaking of crushing it, I think our boy Jeff Herodine from last week's podcast, we got a lot of love from him. A lot of people in the industry that that have seen what he's been able to do with Barletta Boats and Bill Fennick and uh, certainly appreciate that guy a lot. So Great feedback. Thanks, everyone. And this week, let's let's just get right into it. Coming to you guys live uh, for tuning into us is a gentleman by the name of Nate Sanel. He's the owner of National Power Sports Distributors and Concord Triumph. Got a lot to talk about. I mean, this dude starts a business every other day. He's got podcasts going on. Um, Seriously, he's got better you know, podcasting equipment Nate? than we do. Yeah, no kidding. And we're sitting here looking at him with this pod set up that looks like Joe Rogan uh, is talking to us. <laughs> Welcome, Nate. Good to be here. Thank you. Let's just jump right into this. Um, as we said, you're the owner of National Power Sports Distributor and Concord Triumph. But but before we get into what it is you do as far as your businesses, you've been around the industry for a while. You and I were talking, it's getting into the 20-year mark. Um, give our listeners a look into your history. Well, I started sort of my professional career working for my family business. My grandfather started a chain of auto parts in New England in the 30s. And when I got married to my wife, being a college dropout, I knew I needed a better career than just working in bicycle shops, which I loved, but it wasn't going to pay the bills. So I went up and worked for my dad for eight or nine years, and it was really difficult. And I actually left the family business. And I learned a lot, but it, it was the hardest time of my life. And I went to work on a couple of automotive startups. And the last one I was working at, it was pretty obvious that they were not going to raise another round of funding. And I knew I, I, I just wanted to kind of explore how I raise a little bit of side cash, a little bit of a side hustle. So I put an ad in the local newspaper that said, I, I buy motorcycles, mopeds, and scooters. I'll pay you cash and pick them up. And I started buying vintage bikes and cleaning them up and selling them on eBay. And then when the startup went out of business, I realized this was my opportunity not to get another job, but to build a business, which I'd always wanted to do. So I started selling motorcycles on eBay and had a couple of very interesting things happen along the way that were catalysts for great growth. But I won't get into the whole story, but here we are 20 years later. What started as uh, you know selling bikes in my garage on eBay 
Uh, we are one of, if not the largest single store used motorcycle store in the country and got 65 employees and we've grown like crazy and we're acquiring another store as we speak and looking for more. And it's been just an amazing ride. That's a, that's a great background. Quick question on that. When you picked up all these vintage bikes and sold them on eBay, were you actually wrenching on them and getting them up to speed? Or did you just say, as is, buddy, come get it? Well, see, that was the interesting thing. What I was doing is, is I, I, my buddy would help me with the mechanical stuff. He's a bike mechanic, my best friend. And he'd come over after work and I'd pay him with beer and he'd help me uh, fix the bikes up. But what I would do is if I couldn't fix it up, I simply revealed what was the matter with it. And this became sort of the catalyst of how different we are and why we do things the way we do it is I started selling vintage bikes and I'd say, look, I, I, you know, I'd clean it up. First of all, the first thing is make it look as good as you can. And I got real good at shining up old vintage bikes, but I sold tons of bikes that weren't running. And I would just say, look, the carbs need to be clean. As far as I know, I've never had it running. And as long as I bought it for the right price, you can sell something not running as long as you're honest with people that it wasn't running. And that became the catalyst for that combined with every time I sold a bike to somebody and they found a problem with it that I missed, I felt terrible. I felt, I know what that feels like. So I started doing condition reports and I, every time, like I missed the first time that the charging system wasn't working on a bike because I never tested it. So that became like, I, I started building this big list of things that I check on each bike and then people started asking me for modern bikes over the internet, even though they had plenty of dealerships around them they could buy one at because I was more honest about sure. the condition of the bike. Yeah, Tony, I just realized what Nate is. You know what he is? You know what I call him? <laughs> I call him a consultant because he, he's not fixing the dealership. I'm not going to go in there and run your sales process. I'm going to tell you your sales process is broken and be honest with you and lay it out in front of you. And then you're going to trust me. And then you're going to, when it's time to buy a dealership, you're going to ask me how much it's worth. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I do. I do. I really like that. That's good stuff. All right. So hang on. So now let me piece this together. That eBay posting and then being honest with people and people coming back to you, that was the creation of National Power Sports Distribution. Is that correct? Is that yeah. what became National Power Sports Distribution? The name of the company was The Collectible Trader because I thought I was only going to be dealing with vintage bikes. And then I realized mm. that's just not appropriate. I got tired of people calling me, asking me if I sold baseball cards too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I could see that. I could see that. Um, so it became just a trust factor. And now you're just a hub. You were a massive motorcycle hub for some new and used pr uh, product out there, mainly pre-owned. Yeah, we specialize in pre-owned. I mean, we are Triumph dealer. We're, we've been the number one or the number two Triumph dealer in sales for the last six, maybe seven years. But our specialty is used and pre-owned. And we do everything pre-owned in power sports. So all, all categories. Yeah. So selfishly, uh, there's a Triumph Tiger 1200 in my garage right now, and I'm a huge fan of the triple engine. So um, what don't people know about Triumph that they need to know as long as we're on that topic? Oh, man. Let's talk about used bikes. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, the thing is about, it, I'll be very honest, I'm not on the dealership floor anymore. I, I, I occasionally, my involvement with that would be like, hey, can I demo this for a couple of weeks and put the <laughs> dealer plate on it? Because I happen to like the Tiger a lot. That's the last demo that I had was a Tiger. 
I think what a lot of people really, I, I mean, this is probably an old stereotype, but when we first picked up Triumph, people really kind of associated them with kind of, you know, the older Triumphs and oil leaks and quality. And I think what people really need to know is this stuff is amazing quality. The fit and finish is, I'm very proud to be a Triumph dealer. I really like the line. Yeah. Good product. Good product. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of the triple too. I agree with you. It's a great motor. Relative to our podcast with National Power Sports Auctions, Jim Woodruff, what caught your ear and is there anything that you agreed or disagreed with? Because he he's kind of speaking in your wheelhouse. What what do you think of that interview? Well, he is speaking in my wheelhouse, but we have a little bit different perspective. And it's it's interesting to hear how much we agree upon. But there are some points where I think as much as he is also, you know, from 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 the podcast, that he's concerned about helping the dealerships that that work with him. I agree with that a hundred percent. But I think there's a different perspective when you have to, <laughs> there's a different perspective about what happens after you buy the bike, whether it's at the auction or whether it's from another dealership. And I think that's where we differ a little bit. One of the things that I heard him say, I was like, he hit on something that I don't know if the, all the dealers are going to, are, are necessarily going to, to, to grab. He said that as long as you can turn that unit in 30 days, he was talking specifically about when is the turn coming? When is the turn going to come and how should you manage your used inventory? And he said, he dropped 30 days in there. Mm. As long as you can get 30 days. And the first thing I thought about is 30 days from what? 30 days from when? Because when I'm tracking my inventory, these are stacks of dollars. And the moment I've put a stack of dollars out there, I need to know how long it's going to be before I get that stack of dollars back plus the profit. And 30 days, when you start running a larger operation, 30 days goes by really fast and the environment can change a lot in 30 days. So for example, you buy a bike at the auction and uh, what's the lead time to get it to your store, even to get it to your store. And I mean, you'd be lucky to get it in two weeks, right? And you think I'm on track there, maybe a little bit longer. I think that sounds reasonable, timing of it. Yeah, two weeks sounds reasonable anywhere in the country, depending where you're at. Then you got to put it into your shop. What's your schedule like? Uh, how, how, many, how many techs do you have? Uh, have you dedicated time to, to prep these units? That might cause a delay. Is there a title issue? That might cause a delay. How long does it take you to get that bike ready to market? If you're marketing online, how long is it going to take you to get it prepared and get pictures? And these days add up very quickly. All of a sudden, you have a bike that you've owned for 45 days, and now it's ready up front. Now, that's not everybody. But I mean, if, if you're going to play the used game in a professional way, you've got to factor in what's, where, where, where's, what's the time it's going to take you to add the value that makes it worth somebody buying it from you rather than buying it from an individual. Well, so let me follow up on that one. His... You know, you latch onto the 30 days. My notes, I'm looking at my notes from when we interviewed Jim right here. And, and I wrote down inventory equals turns over cost and price. He was he was more adamant about the turn than he was the cost and price. To your point, it may need a little bit more time to mature or or, or age if we're talking about some scotch or some wine, right? And that bike <laughs> may need to age to get the right price. So if it's not 30, where's your number? Where's your head with that? So I, I do things a little bit different. It's, it's not that it's not 30. I'm not saying that you need to get rid of everything within 30 days, but I'm saying you better be prepared for the turn to know what to do. And regardless of what my days are, 
you in your dealership need to know what your days are and how long you want to hold on to this thing. And then what is your strategy if you don't sell it? But to answer your question, Sam, we don't track our entire inventory in that manner. I don't look at and say, okay, I've got $5 million and used in stock right now. And last year I had, I had four and I'm heavy and I need to, I need to clean down my inventory by a million. I don't do it that way. I track each individual unit. And what I do is, again, uh, we've built all of our own software. So this is all these ideas that like most of the industry software can't do some of the things that we need to do to be really specialized in pre-owned. But I track each unit from the day that I buy it. And every night I get a report of what's had what birthday. So tonight I might know three bikes have hit 30 days, six bikes have hit 60, and nothing has hit you know 90 or 120. And it's it's not just how many days it's in stock is reviewing why it may have not sold. So if I can see that I've had 800 web hits on it, I've had a bike under deposit twice, I've had two cancellations, I've had, you know, 27 leads on it. I know I've got the right price, but I've got something else that's affecting why it's the sales not going through or whatever. So what I'm saying is each unit stands alone. And if you don't have a system for manage that, what happens is you get a bunch of dust bunnies, like you get them in, incorporated into your inventory if you're only looking at a dollar value. So there's no straight answer for how many days I want to keep a bike in stock. Each one, each one depends on what the market, you know, when the market changes, let's say higher mileage Harleys, they might level out again where they were extraordinarily high for acquisition before, but metric bikes might not, inexpensive metric bikes. So you're managing each individual unit, not necessarily a clump. Of, of bikes or your, your whole inventory. And, and when you manage them, are you then based off of your site? And by the way, 438 bikes on your website right now. And you're telling me you're managing these all individually while running two, two podcasts and multiple other businesses. So well, thanks <laughs> I for, don't do it. I build the system so people can do it. <laughs> thanks for all the shaming. That's great. We actually have about 650 in stock right now. All right. Thanks. So your 650 <laughs> bikes when they're going out, my last question on this and I'll let it die. You said you have to manage, you know, maybe maybe the Harley and the metric a little bit differently. Are are you pushing that out other than your website? Are you advertising and marketing on different places relative to the the type of bike? An adventure bike's going to get yes. marketed on one website as opposed to sport bikes going to be somewhere else. Well, to somewhat extent, I mean, like you, you advertise the uh, Chopper Exchange only does, you know, you know those types of bikes, uh, Chopper Cruisers, you know, uh, uh, domestic stuff. But yes, I'm, we, we sell our bikes on a lot of different platforms. And it also sounds like you sell your bikes on a ton of different inputs too. Like you said, you know, 30 days being that golden number, but you just brought to uh, light, you know, two weeks after you get it, then you have this and you have that and the title problems. There's a million things that you have to do to this thing. And that could be just really, that's just not pragmatic, right? But there right. may be some bikes that you know that you're taking in that, you know, can sit on the floor for, for 60 days or you'll, yep. you know, that the sweet spot of it selling is X, right? So, I mean, it's, it's a whole, it's like a matrix of, of dealing with this stuff because, you know, I focused a ton in 2021 on the pre-owned cycle on making sure that first off, what we're saying is that, you know, to your point, you're in the business of pre-owned and it's just right. funny that you have, what'd you say? 650 units. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many dealers have told me in a 20 club, I just can't, I just can't find units in my town. They're just not in my town. And I think, I think that's because you're only we waiting for them, them to come. Yeah. <laughs> you're only waiting for them to come to your curb. And then when you do, you're, you're buying too high, you're selling too low. You don't have a schedule to get into service. You don't have mark. I mean, 
it's a whole process that people, I think, need to follow. You know, you follow it with brand new manufactured vehicles, but it's like we don't, you know, with, with pre-owned. Yeah. Yeah. I can, uh, managing pre-owned is, I mean, it's one of the reasons we built our own software is because doing pre-owned at a large scale is a lot more complicated and takes a lot more people than I think what most dealerships think. I mean, I see plenty of dealerships that we buy at that have like one guy, you know, taking pictures of bikes and managing the leads that are coming in from, from whatever websites that they put them on. For me, that makes no sense. I mean, every, you know, we have 65 employees and every one of them is important to the sale of that, that bike. And I, I, it's a major commitment, you know, to do it at scale. It is, it is a, it, basically, I look at it like this. It's another completely separate category of your dealership that you should approach the same way you do parts, accessories, service, et cetera. It really, for me, is a very different world than selling brand new motorcycles. It's a different sales process, a different sales cycle. It's just different. Talk to us a little bit about how it's a different sales process. I think as a lot of people have shifted this past year from uh, new because they couldn't get it into the pre-owned space, be it Marine or on power sport side of the fence, they're trying to treat it exactly the same as right. they would a new, and they're trying to treat it exactly the same as they would coming through the door. So what what's your digital sales process look like? And maybe how does that differ between the new and used since you carry them both? Yeah, the digital process does not differ at all. Basically, when we brought in Triumph, our digital process gave us an immediate advantage because we have focused much more on digital since the day we started. Brick and mortar, I actually never thought I was going to do. I was actually hoping not to do. My, my whole idea with selling pre-owned is that if I put enough information about that bike, I have nothing to sell. If I put the right price, all the information, all I have to do is answer questions. I'm more selling the dealership and the trust than I am the unit. And the difference is I have to be the market expert on each one of these units. If I'm selling a Triumph, Triumph has provided the marketing, the glossy pictures, the features, the specs, but if I'm selling a 10-year-old used motorcycle, I am now responsible for the truth and marketing of that vehicle. I have to find what's wrong with that bike and either fix it or reveal it. So, you know, you go to my website and there's cosmetic condition reports, mechanical condition reports. We post the repair order that we did internally for our customers to see. We are, I hate this word transparent. We tell the truth and that drives the systems for what we do. So it's a massive difference than just reposting an, a manufacturer's marketing. I have to market these bikes and I have to know a lot about each unit. And it, it's a big process to do it right. Relative to that, you've got pages and pages of Harley-Davidson bikes on here. Is, is that a strategy just because of uh, the resale value of Harleys right now? Or is that just what's coming in? Is that just the flow? It's just the flow. It's always been the mix. It's, it's always predominantly 60, 70% Harleys. Uh, it's just there, you know, it's funny, 20 years ago, you'd have to put a deposit on a bike and wait a year and a half to get one. Who would have thought that they're the predominant cruiser in the market? But um, no, we I, honestly, I swear, I look at these as stacks of dollars. I mean, yes, I'm a motorcyclist and I love riding these bikes, but as a business person, whether it says Harley or Suzuki, it, if it's a good investment that I'll make a return on, we're going to purchase it. And it, that, so Sam, it just, it, that's just what the mix is. What do you like your margins to be for your pre-owned? Well, it depends how you define the margin, but GPPU, and you want it in dollars or percentage? Just percentage. 
24, 25 ish. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's, and that's, that's a little high right now. Honestly, I think if I go back statistically over the years, it's probably more like 22, 23. Okay, good. Good stuff on the pre-owned. Sam, you got something else? Yeah, I just, I'm sitting here thinking about you're posting the internal repair order from when you took that bike in and your comment earlier was, I don't have, there's nothing to sell here other than trust. And Tony, how long have we been saying now, 18 months to two years that we have gotten in a transactional world and we forgot about relationship selling. And, Mm -hmm. and here you are with an influx and no endless, what it seems to be an endless supply of pre-owned bikes and you're selling them for margins in the twenties because of trust. And even though you don't like the word transparency, which is just telling the truth, I think that's a statement that everybody listening can, can take away from that. Uh, and I like how it started that started organically with you just identifying the stuff that was wrong and to the point, not knowing how to fix it, but at least telling everybody, Hey man, this is what we found on here. Well, whether you want to include this in or not, there's a story and something that happened to me that drove that. And I had, I had been, I had read a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. You've read it? All right. I have awesome. many times. Love it. That book was so influential to me when I started this. And the book was so influential that they came out with a program. And this was in 2002. That was a call-in program and it had a booklet. And it was a 10-week program of, I had just sort of, I was just forming this business. It was just getting rolling on eBay. And I was like, I really want this to be a big business. And so it was 500 bucks, and which was a huge amount of money for me back then. But I bought this program. And the first exercise in the program was finding your primary aim. And it was all these exercises of what do you want for your life? I want this, I want that. And I filled the thing out and I got on the the conference call and I went first and they said, okay, what's yours? And I said, I want to be the the best used motorcycle shop and blah, blah, some BS. And they said, no, you missed it completely. It's not what do you want for your business? It's what do you want? What do you want out of your life? And I couldn't answer that question. I I had to go back to the workbook and I couldn't figure out what I, what I want. I want whatever I want. I wanted to, I wanted to be, I wanted to have money. I wanted to be healthy. Uh, I want to be happy. You know, I want the same things everyone, but, but when you put it down to a statement, I couldn't figure it out. But what I could figure out was what I didn't want for my life. That section of the column, I've wrote all kinds of things. And because of my prior experience in my family business, a very tough experience, I looked at all the things that I had written down. I don't want to be around bullshit artists. I don't want to be, you know, I, I want to, all these things about my prior experience. And I said, what's the reverse of that? And I looked at it and I said, my primary aim is to always have the courage to tell the truth. And I wrote that down and I started to cry. And I was like, holy shit, I can apply this to everything in my life. I can apply it obviously to my family relationship, my wife, my kids. It's hard to tell the truth. You, you know, you gotta, you've got to be courageous and brave. But when I started looking at the business, I said, oh my God, my industry doesn't really tell the truth. If you buy used, you get a taillight warranty and best of luck, buddy. And I was like, all I have to do is just tell the truth, just apply that. So then the condition reports got really deep and intensive because I had a mission. And that's really what drove, uh, you know, the, the transparency behind the company. And it's still today, it resonates with, with our, our people deeply. Hmm. What well, I, I like that because th- there's, maliciously telling a lie 
And then there's not giving all the information. And then on the other side of all of that is just tell the truth. Just put it all out there. Well, the condition reports got more intent, more, more comprehensive because of that exact thought. Uh, omission is not being truthful. So I mm. had to be more thorough. <laughs> but it speaks to it speaks to something that that we don't talk a lot about in this industry. It speaks right. really loud to love. What are you doing here that's more important than just making money? Obviously, we have to make money. If we're not profitable, we can't serve anybody. So you've got to be sharp financially. But if the only thing you do is chase profit and chase dollars, then you constantly don't have a direction. Your compass is always spinning. And this was a hidden gem for moving forward and is it no matter what happens in this business we know if we tell the truth we're good and everyone tells it we still have our compass pointing the right way yeah i i love the philosophy because um we know tons and tons of dealers that are extraordinarily truthful and run very you know due north businesses and obviously we've all run across dealerships it's like whoa hold on man <laughs> yeah you're doing what so I love I love that the that from pre-owned we got into an existential conversation. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sitting here and I'm gonna guess at these at a couple of these dates here, but you were when was that 2000, 2001? You're on this call in with the E Myth revisited, right? Two thousand two. Yep. Two thousand two. Roll the clock forward to I think twenty eleven, right? And at the time they're telling you what's your primary aim. 2011, Simon Sinek comes out with a book saying start with why, and now everybody's what's your why? What's your why? What's your why, right? And in between that, we had a war, a major war. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had the financial collapse in 08 and 09. And then we had rolled forward and then we had COVID and all this mess. And we're in this whole new retail space. Yet what's the answer? The same damn thing, right? Yeah. Be honest, be transparent, be upfront, have a cool product and people are going to like it. Yeah. I, I yeah. think that's very telling 20 years of, of stretch there. Let me ask you another one. So kind of venturing away from pre-owned right now, but y- you also own and operate Bank My Bike. So what is that and what does it do? So Bank My Bike is my wholesale project. You know, if you take a look at what we do with retail motorcycles is we're transparent. We try to solve some of the problems in the industry for the end user. Well, when you look at wholesaling for a dealership, the dealership's now the end user and you have to say, what are their problems? Now, I'm in an interesting position where I can I know what a lot of the problems of those dealers are. One of the problems with dealers typically using wholesalers in the past is that they didn't necessarily have a guy. They had 10 guys. So if you have a dealership trying, and this is, we're going back, it's much better now. But mm-hmm. if in those days, if a Harley dealer wanted to take an Aprilia in trade, they would call the Aprilia dealer, right? Sure. And the Aprilia dealer would maybe or maybe not give them a, va- a real value and then maybe or maybe not even be a check writer for it. So the Harley dealer was still out on their own in that particular case. So... The dealerships were often not taking in trades because they would get burnt. And so they were losing sales opportunities. The auction wasn't really a good outlet in this in scenario because, again, it's not telling them what they should be paying for something they're not familiar with to begin with. When I started, I knew, like you said, I need, if I'm going to specialize in used, I can't just call up the OEM and order another 100 units. I've got to figure out a way to source these. So I tried to figure out what are the pains involved with the motorcycle dealerships and how do I help them and help me? Had to be a win-win. So I formed Bank My Bike and it started basically, you know, keeping track of all the dealer quotes just on a pad of paper and stuff. And I realized I had to digitize this because we would always have 
conflicts. A dealer would say to me, you told me you were going to give me five for this. I'm like, I, I wrote down four. I'm not sure where, you know, and we would play this back and forth. And I told you it was, I told you it had a scratch. Like, no, you told me it was perfect because I'd have my notes and they'd have their notes. So I decided it needed to be digitized and we created a digital catalyst for, you know, a website where we can, a dealer can quickly fill out a form and get a, uh, a buy figure. Originally it was just typical wholesale where, you know, if a, if a dealership was calling me over and over and then I wasn't getting any bikes from them, I would do what every wholesaler does. I'd say, well, you don't support me. So I, you don't get my knowledge anymore. You're just using me. And it started happening more and more and more. And then I started telling some dealerships, you know what? You're not going to sell me any bikes. I'm, we're no longer partners. Uh, that's not a partnership. And when I would shut dealers off, they would say, no, 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 no. You can't shut me off. You'll get some bikes. And I'd be like, I didn't understand the value. Our knowledge of the industry and of all the different models and the bikes is extremely valuable to the other dealerships. So rather than treat this adversarially, I decided we need to be the value guide that writes checks. And yes, I'm going to be a free consultant to a certain extent, but I'm also getting more opportunities to help dealerships and partner up with them and get more bikes. So maybe I won't get as many bikes, but if I reach a lot more dealers, I, st I still get a lot of bikes. So in other words, like any business that I start, there has to be value. You can't start a business if you're not creating value. So where's the value? And if I create value, then, then it succeeds from there. So we just, we're just trying to be a modern wholesaler where we will quote anything. We'll quote it quickly. Mm. They're quoted by real people. There's not, we don't have an al algorithm. So like we were talking about earlier, where we know that the, the metric small displacement market is going to stay strong and hot, but maybe the, the modern CVO, very expensive Harley is going to soften a little bit. We know this today. The book knows it in two months. Mm. The, book is, the book is backwards. So the value of having someone that has their fingers on the pulse of the market as we speak becomes extremely valuable to other dealers. And we decided to share it rather than hoard it. So I'm, I'm looking at the login here. You say share it rather than hoard it. Is there a membership to, to log in? Is there a fee that a dealer is going to pay to be able to have access to that information? Not at this point. At this point, I am giving my knowledge away of the, my buyers who are extremely good, giving their knowledge away for free in exchange for the opportunity to purchase some of those bikes that the dealership doesn't want or doesn't fit their floor. Okay. Very altruistic. I'll give you that. But what's to stop me from going over to the behemoth Rumble On and doing the exact same thing? And they have a My Garage, kind of like you have a My Garage on there, right? Which is a feature that, for those of you not listening, if I want to put all my documentation for the motorcycles upstairs into My Garage, be it on your site or theirs, it tracks all the, here's your title work, here's your insurance card, here's your everything. So having it all in one place is kind of a neat little thing. My point is there's some value add on ads on both sides. And how do you compete with guys like that who I believe are also giving a bid right out of the gate and taking either an algorithm or some of their knowledge to put forth towards the value of the bikes? Well, sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. So just a, just another competitor? Y yeah. And I, I, well, I think we do one thing very different than both, than both NPA, Direct Buy, and Rumble On and whoever's coming next is, number one, we don't use algorithms. We do use real people. But what we're really doing is we're trying to partner. I'm not trying to pick the pocket 
for a few bikes. What I'm trying to do is build long-term relationships with dealerships who understand the value of getting a traded number before they make their deal so they don't get upside down. The value of calling me and saying, I have a tight deal. I got nothing left. I can put this deal together if you can swing another 200 bucks on the unit. I'll make it up to you later. I'll throw in a tire, but I, I need your help with this. And we do. Now, you know what I mean? It's like that relationship and the way we work and the way we're scaling, I think that's our difference. I mean, you want to call our dealer line and talk to Barry or Ben, you can do that. And they will share with you why we're telling you the number that we're giving you. You know, it happens sometimes uh, NPA number will be way above ours or, or will be way above NPAs because we, we have different data and different ideas of what that bike's value is. Yeah, that relationship is, I mean, heck, Tony, it's everything we talk about. It's everything we teach. And so I, I can see that it's not, a, it's not a number coming back to me. It's call my buddy and have a chat with him about why you think it's worth $300 more than the number we're giving you. Yeah. And, and, and again, I mean, I, I can, like, like Sam said, I can definitely feel the altruistic vibe coming from you. What do you say to the dealers that are like, oh, this dude's just trying to make money. He's just trying to pick the best, the best bikes out of there where he can hold the highest margin and to hell with the rest. I mean, what, what do you say to the naysayers? I say they should worry about their business and not mine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Honestly, that's a, people, people have all kinds of ideas of what they think we're doing. We get called internet whores and this and that. And, and for the most part, people have no idea. They don't know how strong our margins on or what our turns on or anything. And I, I, whatever somebody wants to think, great. What I'm dismayed to see a little bit more in our industry, since there are more guys doing this type of service, is I'll use all three of you and whoever gives me the, the best money gets the bike. And there are plenty of dealerships like that. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, quite honestly, that's fine. I can play that game. I know I'm not going to get every bike. That's fine. But I think it's a closed-minded mentality. I think these dealers are missing something. They're missing the value of that relationship. They're missing the value of how quickly I can get that bike off their hands. They're missing all the messiness that comes with some of the other options in lieu of an extra hundred bucks, in lieu of me wanting to pick up that deal with them first because we have a great relationship and they don't lie to me about the condition of bikes and stuff like that. Like that's where the, the vast majority, I have over a thousand dealers on Bank My Bike, but the vast majority of bikes I buy are from a small pocket of very dedicated dealers who understand how much value we give their business. And in exchange, we get the bikes they don't want. It's a good mm. relationship. And there's a lot of dealers out there that really do appreciate it. So I'm, you know, we're out in the field with reps talking to other dealers and explaining how we can help them take in a bike that they might not have and give them a number before they make a mistake. Yeah, that's honestly, that's uh, Jim Woodruff from NPA was in alignment with you. It's like, we're just a resource. It's available to you and it's an option for you. And if you think our price is too high or too low, that's fine. You know, exactly. Don't, don't use us, but don't use us. But I, I don't know for all those people who think that you're giving the product away. I'm sitting here looking at a 2018 Aprilia on your website and RSV4 at 19 grand. I'm like, they're not giving anything away. That's a brand new bike. <laughs> that bike is brand new one mile. And we're not an Aprilia. I don't even know how we got this. That must have been sitting on somebody's showroom floor. Yeah, I believe it was. And sometimes dealers will use us for that that capacity. Well, it probably should be sitting on mine after this podcast. Just for the I record. got two of them, Sam. Let, oh shit! Let's. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to shift gears on you now. I want to get into the Triumph store, not because of Triumph, but because a guy who says I really was trying to not play in the brick and mortar space, and you've got this great business model in the pre-owned space. Why the hell would you open a Triumph store and and go through what I perceive to be the headache? Unless maybe you now understand 
the angst that a lot of the brick and mortar stores are going through and you have solutions for them, maybe you could run it better than they can. <sighs> well, I'll tell you, there are things that traditional dealers do much better than us. I mean, when you look, I'll get to your question, but when you look in our, <laughs> our, our service department stuff, my service department has one extremely large customer, me. And I have to staff it for that. And so my service department is not my strongest revenue as far as uh, outside re- sales and stuff, because quite frankly, at $130 an hour or whatever our, our rate is right now, I make considerably more per hour when you look at my GPPU on fixing a used bike. So if I only have, I've, I've got, I think, 10 or 12 techs right now. And if that's all I have, and I still have 100 bikes waiting to be processed, to serviced, I almost can't afford to do outside service. So for years, we literally sent our customers after they bought a bike down to the traditional dealer down the street to buy their helmets, jackets, gloves, because I didn't care. I want to do oh one Oh my thing. God, you're killing me. No, me I know, changed. I know. I Tell me that's changed. Tell me you're so not much. doing that anymore. I'm not kidding. But now things have changed. So we, we brought Triumph on. We have learned some things. I'm still not crazy about having a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of apparel and parts and stuff that turn 0.75 times a year when I can turn that money seven times a year. And so... It, again, comes down to how big of a stack of dollars do you have and how quick do you want to see it turn? Wait, we just said like 20 minutes ago, it's not just about the stack of dollars. We're trying to be altruistic and honest and predict. No, 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 like no. Good it's go- still about the stack of dollars. I can't oh, help anybody. I love, I love it. You are a motorcycle dealer. I love it. So yeah. <laughs> um, no, but okay. So you changed though. You you went away from that model and and now you're 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 doing a little more of what you would yeah. call traditional. Wait, yeah. hold, I need you to hit pause because I want to make sure the listeners heard two things in a world full of, well, nobody can find any technicians in there. Your words were, I only have 10 to 12 technicians right now. <laughs> right, that's so, so there's one. And here's the other side of it, right? Everybody out there playing that stupid $99.109.119 labor rate. You're charging $130 an hour labor rate to yourself. Yes. To your yeah. other company. And you only have 12 technicians to turn all the wrenches, right? And that's where a tremendous amount of the profit is being made. So I just, I really want the listeners to hear that when we talk about raising your damn labor rate and we beat that drum so often, it can be done. It is a mindset and you can find good techs if you give them an opportunity to work in a really cool place. So sorry to hit pause on that. No, it's interesting because, it, you know, we, we have an incredible group uh, in this company. We have an incredible group and we don't pay commission at all anywhere there we're not flat wow. rate we, we i need the stuff to be quality i need people to pay attention to what they're doing to these bikes and make sure that they have all the resources and they can do what they need to do to get this bike into the condition that it needs to be to sell it and my ceo that runs a company comes from more of a traditional background and not being commission based at first was just kind of killing him. He was like, how are we going to motivate people if we're not paying them commission? People just won't work as hard, you know? They're not going to be jumping for the phones. It has not been my experience that that's the case. If you keep somebody safe, you pay them well, you give them good benefits, and you manage them well. I have employees that have been with me 18 years been almost the entire time. I've got lots of people who've been over 10 and we don't pay commission and we don't play flat, pay flat rate is we're trying to offer a home where someone who's into the industry can do something a little bit different than at most other motorcycle shops. And we do have a, an altruistic uh, drive and that appeals to a lot of people. I mean, 
how many motorcycle shops have you been at that, that the salespeople are not arguing with the shop because the salesperson wants to make the sale and the shop is too busy and they're butting heads over when it can get done. At my company, we all have one purpose. Buy bikes, fix bikes, sell bikes. Like we're all part of that system. And I think it's much easier when you're not incentivizing individuals to to encourage individual behavior. You know, we have a process and a way we do stuff and it needs to be done that way. Hmm. And people go rogue when it means an extra couple bucks in their pocket. I think you hit the nail on the head though, that they must be managed accordingly because we've always said pay plans aren't management plans, right? So I can incentivize you to get off your ass and then I have the infighting and the commission or I can manage, you know, I can pay you appropriately, but I have to manage the behaviors that you want to see on the showroom floor. So yeah. spot on to that point. Just want to button up that point about going into the new side of the fence. I still don't know why you wanted to, other than you had to have a service facility to handle all these used bikes. Uh, the honest answer is so lame. The honest answer is you can't get insurance for just doing pre-owned. It's extremely hard to get insurance for a business if you don't have an OEM. That is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I just like Triumph that much, and that would have been awesome too. Well, it was a big factor. I mean, because we've had things like, in order to serve that purpose, we've had Kimco in the past, and we had Royal Enfield, but Triumph is the first real brand that we have. And at that point, if you had asked me if I want to have an OEM, I would have told you, hell no. Mm -hmm. But if you'd asked me, what about Triumph? I go, mm, maybe Triumph. I love vintage and I love Triumph. And so I think it was easier for me to have my first OEM be Triumph. I don't think I would have said yes to Kawasaki or Suzuki. I just don't think I was in the right mind frame at that point. I knew what I didn't know. And I know I wasn't a good operator in that traditional sense. Mm. <laughs> All right. So we, we, we've talked pre-owned and we've talked turns and, and, this has gone in directions that I didn't see it going. So I love this. So I'm going to give you one final question, kind of a, a broader question for you, Nate. And that is, what do you see coming down the pipe for the industry in the next 10 years, five, 10 years? What do, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, you know, I, I think for the, f maybe up until maybe two years ago, uh, I was almost obsessed with that question, you know, especially after like Sam, you referenced, we've been through a recession in 07, 08, We've been through a lot of business changes and it is sort of, it, no, it's not sort of, it is my job to sort of do the predicting of where we should go and what our strategy might be, that kind of thing. And what I found was that when I focus on that, I was almost always coming from a place of fear. What is going to go wrong? When is the market going to change? When is somebody going to sue me? When is this? I mean, you know, all these kinds of things, like when I was thinking about the future, it was more of a protective point of view. And then it was about two years ago, on, under a moment of extreme stress of, of all this, where I'm saying, what am I doing? We've been around for 18 years at that point. We are still here. We're kicking ass. We have an incredible team. We make good decisions. So when I think about the future, the thing that gives me courage and the thing that like I'm expanding right now and I'm, I'm about to close on my first branch location. And I'm, I'm just talked to somebody else today about a second. When I think about the future, all I know is that I have a great team that works really well together is really agile and always wants to do the right thing. So I'm going to wait and see what happens. You know, I mean, yeah, we can sit and talk about an incoming recession. I don't see there's any way around that. I said it two years ago when we started printing money like it was toilet paper. I mean, there's no other thing that can happen in my mind. If you print a lot of extra money, then soon you're going to be paying 25 bucks for a soda. I, I think we're heading that way. 
But until, until the day that somebody says, nobody is going to buy motorcycles anymore, they're outlawed, nothing in power source, until that day, I'm going to trust that we got a good team and, and we'll take it as it comes. We got a plan that we're going to work. We got to plan our work and work our plan. Good answer. Like it. Nate, I was, I was a super uh, good interview. That just, it went places. I didn't think it was going to go, but really good insight and a good, a good look into the, in how your mind works. And I, and I like it, man. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. So thanks for taking the time to spend some time with us. I know it's time for you to go out and get on your bike. So for Sam Dancer and Nate Sandel, I'm Tony Gonzalez. This has been Garage Cast. Have a great Tuesday, everybody. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, everyone. Thank you guys for having me on. I Honestly, I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast lately. I've gotten some really good ideas and you fired me up by a bunch of things. So keep it up, man. It's really cool. You're doing it. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. Good luck to you. See you.